wonderful words, and they are words that express the reality of our hearts and our faith in Christ, our faith in your word that reveals to us all of your glory in the face of Jesus Christ, Father. We pray now as we prepare our hearts to hear a testimony of your sovereign grace in the life of one of your elect chosen before the foundation of the world, that you would give us, Lord, a sense of the wonder of salvation, and that even as we open your word and look at Luke 18 and our Lord Jesus, your interaction with the rich young ruler when you were here on earth, teach us what you want us to learn and show us the glory of salvation, the emptiness of all human effort, but the certainty of grace to those who believe and to those who turn and trust in you. So be our teacher, Holy Spirit. And we pray these things in the matchless name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, go ahead and open up your Bible to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 18, 18 through 30, as we're going to look at a familiar account. It's a familiar account to anyone who knows their Bibles because it's repeated three times in Scripture in each of the synoptic Gospels, so Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And if it's repeated three times, then it means it contains a truth that is significant, although every truth is significant in Scripture, but one that he particularly wants us to pay attention to and listen to. It is the, par- it is the account of the Lord's interaction with the rich young ruler. And I know that we're in Daniel 9, and uh, I'm eager to get back to Daniel 9. You might be uh, eager to get back there as well. We've taken a a couple of weeks off. We will next week, but really I wanted to pull the car over, and before we launch back into our study of Revelation and the the book of Daniel and then Revelation, uh, to really consider once more what it means to be a follower of Christ, and what is it that God calls us to, to embrace the gospel and to embrace Christ, and particularly as we're going to hear a testimony of it this morning from Ramon. Well, because of time's sake, I'm not going to read the entire passage. We're going to read it as we go through, but we are going to be in Luke chapter 18, so if you're there. And let me just note right up front that this is an encounter of the Lord Jesus with what many would call a sincere seeker. But as we go through the passage, we'll be reminded or be made to realize that what seems as like sincerity, is in fact fraught with all kinds of misunderstanding, both about God, both about Christ, and about self. A misunderstanding that Christ is going to expose for us so that we can evaluate not only our own lives, but that we can understand what it means to truly have experienced that grace of God inside to give us a faith that attaches us to Christ. Now, we'll begin in verse 18, and I'll read... To you, the opening of this encounter. Now, just by way of context, this comes after Jesus has given some instruction about prayer and a couple of other parables. The parable of the woman who went to the judge for justice, and he was an unrighteous judge, but he eventually listened because she was going to wear him out. And then he ends that parable, and he says, but will he find faith on earth? He gives it to uh, encourage perseverance in prayer, but then he leaves out a challenge and say, you may persevere in prayer for the coming of the kingdom, but when the kingdom of come, will you be found to be a true follower and a true believer in Christ? 
And then he gives an example of a parable of those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked on others with contempt. And we're familiar with that. It is the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And the Pharisee starts listing off all of his righteous deeds. The tax collector had nothing to list off before God but simply said, Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner. And Christ makes this, or this striking contrast between those who were deemed as morally upright and acceptable by God, those who were deemed as outcasts, and yet he switches it and says the morally upright is the one who was not justified outside of God's kingdom, and that it was the tax collector who came broken and cried out for mercy, who was in fact justified and experienced salvation. And then he gives an account. Luke records for us of children coming to Jesus and the Lord taking that opportunity to instruct those who are around and say these children represent the kind of humble dependence, the sense of helplessness that marks those who enter into the kingdom of heaven. It is one who comes like a child. It's one who comes trusting in nothing in themselves but is leaning completely on the grace of God. And then it is that that then brings Luke into this encounter that we're, we'll read now, this rich young ruler coming to the Lord Jesus, seemingly to seek salvation. But is that really what he was after? Look at me with verse 18. He says, A ruler questioned him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And notice first here that he is a sincere questioner. He's a sincere questioner. He's one who comes not in the hypocrisy that was so common to those who approached Jesus, particularly from the ruling class, the rulers or the scribes or the Pharisees. He's coming with a sincere question. Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And the first striking thing to notice is his description, which is unique to Luke. He says he is a ruler. He is a ruler. Matthew 19, which also records this account, simply says someone came to him. Mark 10, which also records this account, just simply says a man came to him. But Luke here identifies him as a ruler. He was then a man of great importance and accomplishment. This term is used throughout the Gospels to mark those who were in a ruling class within Israel. It's not necessarily that he was a part of the Sanhedrin, but he was certainly one who had attained a high position of respectability and, uh, and honor within the Jewish culture, and even at a very young age. He is a man who, in the eyes of the Jewish people, would have seemed to have everything. He was a man of success. He was a man of wealth. He was a man of intellect. He was a man of accomplishment. And he was a man of favor with all of those who knew him. He was also a man who would have seemed to have had a high degree of integrity. And, in fact, in many ways, would have had a high degree of integrity and morality according to their understanding of the covenant and what produced a righteous Jew or a faithful covenant follower of God. In short, by identifying him as a ruler, he is not one that you would have expected to come to Jesus with this kind of question. In fact, he would have been one of the last ones you would have expected to come to Jesus with this kind of a question. It would have been very easy, it would have been very assumed that he is someone that could take a great amount of confidence in what he had achieved, that he had, could take a great amount of confidence in his standing before God and before the Jewish nation. And yet, he comes with a question. He comes with a question. He says, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? 
Now, this wasn't the first time Jesus was asked this question. Even in the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 10, verse 25, it says that another uh, asked him this question. But in Luke chapter 10, the question was asked in order to test Jesus, in order to test him. In other words, it was not asked from a sincere heart. But that's unlike the situation here. This young man had a sincere desire to know something, to extract something from Jesus that would answer a deep longing of his heart. As a matter of fact, in Mark chapter 10, it says this, in the same account, that Jesus looked at him and felt a love for him. He felt a tenderness toward him, a compassion toward him. In a sense, Jesus' heart went out to this young man when he saw him coming. He was not against him as a hypocrite. He was not ready to expose him as one who was merely trying to put Jesus to the test and shame before the crowds. No, he came with a sincere question. And Jesus had a compassion toward him, a love for him. Now, it may be, possibly, that he's asking this question spontaneously, in some sense reacting to what he had heard Jesus just teach about children coming into the kingdom. But whether it was spontaneous or one that had been burning in him for a while, it was a thoughtful question. It was a meaningful question. It was a right kind of question. And he came to the right person. And he says, what shall I do then to inherit eternal life? Now, what makes this question so shocking is if there is one thing that a Jew understood or would have or took for granted is that the one blessed by God would have had a sense of particularly somebody who was wealthy, somebody who was attained in the law of God, he was very knowledgeable of the scriptures, somebody who had reached such a high position within the covenant people of God, he would have assumed an inheritance in the kingdom of David. He would have assumed, or it would have been assumed, he had possession of spiritual fullness and the reality of the kingdom. He would have thought to have been blessed by God. And if you'll remember that even John the Baptist and both Jesus many times in his interactions with the leaders, he had to instruct them and confront them with this. Do not think that just because you are a child of Abraham or a descendant of Abraham that that makes you a child of the covenant. It doesn't. But that was ingrained into the minds of the people and it would have been a part of the thinking here. But it's not. Because he comes with a question that is essentially acknowledging, I don't have what I need. Something is missing. Something is missing. My success isn't an affirmation of my fullness, experiencing the fullness of the covenant. My supposed blessing and attainment is not, in fact, fulfilling what I know there to be in the covenant. That something is missing. And what is missing, he says here, is what? Eternal life. Eternal life. Now, what does he mean by eternal life? It's not a question of how he will consciously live in the presence of God forever. They understood that. It wasn't a question of there one day being a resurrection. They understood that, clarified in the uh, New Testament, but clearly established in the Old Testament. What was he asking him then? He was asking him how he could gain the life of the covenant that was marked by an intimacy with God, a spiritual reality of joy. The kind of joy that comes from the presence of God. Psalm 16, in your presence is fullness of joy. The kind of life that had a vital and real and dynamic relationship with the God of the covenant, the God of Israel. That's what he was asking for. That's what he had seen in the life of Jesus. 
That's what he had heard Jesus talk about, and he realizes, I don't have it. He's admitting he does not have this intimate share in the life of God. Good. That's a sincere question. That's a, that's a right kind of longing, isn't it? That's what should be in the heart of everyone, is a desire for this vital and real relationship with God through Christ. That's the very reason that God created us in his image, was to have relationship with him. And he's realizing, I don't have that, even though I am a Jew, even though I am a member of the covenant, a descendant of Abraham, even though I'm one who seems to have blessing, I don't have this. And it's the thing that I want. But... His desire is exposed as lacking the kind of reality that it needs in order to have a real response to Christ. Look at what he says. Good teacher, what shall I do? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And this is the first indication that his coming, though in sincerity, is lacking. It's lacking in substance that it needs to have. What shall I do? And you can imagine this is a reasonable question from someone like this young man. He had worked hard to get where he was. He had worked hard to attain what he had to attain. And now he wants to know, what else do I need to do? What other kind of work? What other kind of effort? What is it, Jesus? Will you tell me the key that unlocks this mystery? I've shown by my life I'm willing to do whatever it takes to gain what I desire. Tell me what it takes. I need you to tell me. Again, this is a legitimate question, and it can be the sincere cry of one who's under the conviction of sin. As a matter of fact, basically a parallel kind of question is asked by those in Acts chapter 2 who heard Peter preach the first New Covenant sermon, the first gospel of Jesus Christ. And after he had told them about the coming of the new covenant of the Spirit, after he told them about the reality of Christ and their guilt and crucifying him, about the prediction of Christ as dying for the sins of his people, as rising from the dead, and then he says, you are the ones who are guilty, you are the ones who have done this, and at the end of it they said, what shall we do? What shall we do? The implication, what shall we do to be saved? At which Peter responded, Repent, repent. But notice here, this is not how the ruler is asking this question. He's not asking the question in that way. He's not asking because he has some deep conviction of sin. He's not asking because he wants to enter the kingdom, as Jesus had explained at a previous time in the Sermon on the Mount that we call it, that he was, because he was poor in spirit, that he was mourning over his sin, that he was hungering and thirsting after righteousness. No, that's not how he's coming. He's asking from a sense, get this, of his own moral righteousness. That's why he's confused. Why don't I have it? What else do I need? He's asking from a religious framework by which he thought that his righteousness, his doing something, his obedience, some kind of sacrifice that he could make would bring him to that level of righteousness where he could receive this intimacy, this reality of the covenant that he knows he does not have. Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this. We're going to go through this passage quickly. But he reflects what Paul was addressing to the Jews in many places, but in Romans chapter 10, he says, you have a zeal for God, can you finish it? But it's not according to knowledge. 
seeking to establish your own righteousness, you have neglected the righteousness of God. And you've not come to Christ who is the end of righteousness for all of those who believe. He was still in that party, had a zeal for God, but in his zeal for God, he was seeking to establish his own righteousness. And this isn't just some far-off man unrelated to us. He represents everyone who has an interest in spiritual things, thoughts about eternity, the desire to have an intimate relationship with God, and who thinks and is, is confused about why I don't have it in light of all that I've done and all that I am. What am I missing? So he went to the right person, what I want you to notice at first. He went to the right person, he went to the right question, but he went without a right understanding of Christ, of himself, and what his truest need actually was and is for many in his situation. And the problem is that many churches stop here. They just assume, and many times Christians in witnessing, they just assume that what is meant by the desire is it's a legitimate desire if somebody says, I want to be saved. They just assume that it's a legitimate desire if they say, how can I become a Christian? And sometimes it is. But sometimes we give too easy of a response. And there needs to be some challenging. There needs to be some probing into the intention and the thinking of the one who would otherwise seem to be a ripe candidate. Too often we accept too little of a commitment. So this man needed to be exposed, and he needed to be exposed for his own spiritual good. And look at this next then. He came with a sincere question, but a skewed view of Christ, of himself, and sin. Look at what he says, Jesus. The ruler came to him, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Rather than being excited or giving a quick answer, he took time to expose his thinking in his heart. He was challenging this man. And let's just say that through this man in this recorded account, he's challenging us who are reading it to think about what he just said. He's not going to let him get away with just a flippant comment or a flippant response. He needs to expose how, although sincere, Yet superficial, his question really is, and his desire really is. And I would say that we, maybe some in here, or certainly those we know, understand this. How many superficial views of Christ and of sin and the gospel people are satisfied with very often. To talk about Christ's sovereignty, to sing about God's holiness, to talk about atonement and sin, but then live, think, and act as if these were not the central realities of life. To act flippantly in how we pursue him. Well, let's just very briefly consider this a, a bit more closely. So Jesus said, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. I want you to notice just three things here. First, what it says about God. What it says about this man, and what it says about sin. First, what it says about God. He says, no one is good but God alone. That's 
the premise that he bases everything else on. Now, in one sense, there would have been no internal conflict in this ruler by Jesus saying that. If they, one thing they understood is that God is good. God is good to Israel. God is good by, in both creation and covenant. God created all things, Genesis uh, 131, and it was very good. It was a reflection of God's own goodness in everything that he made. He was good in covenant, in the covenant relationship with the Jews that he had entered into as an expression of his goodness and of his loving kindness. Let me just give you a couple of examples. These, of course, could be piled up. Psalm 105, For the Lord is good, his loving kindness is everlasting, and his faithfulness to all generations. Psalm 86, 5, For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon you. Exodus 33, 19, you'll remember Moses was on the mountain and he said, show me your glory. And what did God say? I will let all my goodness pass before you. My goodness, it was essential to his glory. It was essential to his nature, essential to the way that he wanted to identify himself and present himself to Israel, even to a sinful and disobedient people. So that wasn't an uh, an internal conflict for him, but Jesus wanted him to think a bit more deeply about that and for us. He says that God and God alone is good. The statement then identifies goodness as a quality that belongs to God alone, not merely in the sense of God as creator or originator or source is good, but that God and God alone is intrinsically good within himself. He is inherently good. He is necessarily good. He only is good of himself. And we can get tripped up here, even as this man did. We'll realize we're not so far away from him. God is not good, as we often think, like we are good, but only more so. We tend to think of God like us just a lot bigger and better. God is powerful like we're powerful, only a lot more. God is uh, knowledgeable like we're knowledgeable, only a lot more. But that is not the right way to think about God. When we think of God, everything that is true of him is true of himself. In other words, it's something he possesses within himself in an infinite degree and in an infinite way. So God's goodness is not... Merely that he is a lot better than we like us, but a lot better. His goodness is an attribute bounded to the perfection of his infinite nature. Now let's take that one step further just as a way of reminder. Not that we're going to spend a lot of time, but but consider this as we did before. God's goodness is the foundation of his justice and his judgment. We tend to think of God, if God is good, how could he bring judgment But that's exactly the opposite and where we misunderstand. It is because God is good that he has to uphold justice and judgment and has to hate evil and hate everything that is chaotic, everything that opposes to him and all evil and wickedness. It is God's goodness and his goodness to his perfections that makes him hate all that is in opposition to him. And so there's a depth to the goodness that this man was not understanding. Secondly, He misunderstood what it said about Jesus. Notice what he says. So if God alone is good, a premise that he would have started with, Jesus said, why do you call me good? Why? If I am a man, I am a man standing before you, why are you attributing to me something that belongs to God alone? Now, there is something interesting. That there's no record, as it's been often noted, 
of a rabbi ever being called good. That wasn't something that, that wasn't an attribute that they took on to themselves. It was preserved for God because of their reverence and their high reverence for the holiness and the glory of God. And yet this man makes an extraordinary statement. He calls him a good teacher, a good teacher. At the very least, it could say that he realized there was something unique about Jesus, not not unlike maybe Nicodemus who came to him at night and said, we know that you are from God. And so there's something about this man that understood and perceived in Jesus something that exceeded a mere human teacher. What that was, the text doesn't tell us. But this is an extraordinary statement. And Jesus wants to challenge him on it. One comment, commentator talking about this challenge said that, you know, paraphrasing what Jesus, the intent of his statement says this, that Jesus, uh, quote, Think, man, if I am good and if only God is good, then who am I and what am I doing? Think. In other words, think about what you're saying. Don't just say something flippantly. And Jesus is drawing him to think about that way, and and again, us too. And again, this is a common error. Many have all kinds of positive views of Jesus that fall short of the reality and the significance of who he is. You can think of even non-Christian religions. Muslims hold Jesus in high esteem as a great prophet, the greatest of prophets, but they deny that he is the eternal son of God in flesh. Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses speak of Jesus as the highest of created beings with all of, all of this praise and honor to Jesus, but he is not the Son of God, eternal, incarnate, in flesh, a member of the divine trinity, of the triunity of God. General public might think of him who isn't absolutely opposed to Christianity, but in general that might say that Jesus is an enlightened spiritual teacher, that he's a good moral teacher, that he's the greatest of all moral teachers, but he's not the son of God, eternal in flesh. And the reality is, is no matter what positive thinking that someone might have about Christ, anything short of acknowledging his divine glory, his person and his work, is blasphemy. It's blasphemy. And Jesus actually said, if we do not understand who he is, then, to use the words of Jesus, you will die in your sin. Thirdly then, it exposes something about God. He's pushing him to think more deeply. Exposes something about Christ. But it also exposes something about the depth of human sin that this man needed to see. Consider again this statement. No one is good except God alone. No one is good except God alone. Conversely, that means then that no human is good. Nobody else is good. Nobody can take that on to themselves as an attribute that describes them as good. That only belongs to God. To say then, to say God alone is good is then to to condemn all humanity as evil, as not good, as ungood, as bad. It's a significant statement. Jesus is not saying, of course, that men do not do good things, nor is he saying that the righteous do not bring forth good spiritual fruit. What he is saying is that anything that good that can come out of man is only a reflection of God's goodness, and the best goodness that can come out of man, even out of the regenerate, ultimately falls short of the holy and perfection, perfect standard of God. So Jesus could say this in Luke 6.45. You're familiar, but I just want to make this point. 
He says, the good man out of his good treasure brings forth what is good. He does. But it is a goodness that marks the fruit of God's grace in his life. He could say of others who do general good. He says, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. Yeah, you can do good. You can bring forth good fruit as a mark of God's grace and his goodness, but still fall short. Or you can just be generally human good, but even still you acknowledge that your basic constitution in yourself is evil. So think of the Apostle Paul. When his eyes as a righteous Jew, as one who was totally confident in all of his accomplishments and all of his heritage, what did he say of himself when his eyes were opened? Romans 7, I know that no good thing dwells in me that is in my flesh. No good thing, nothing, zero, not one thing. He says then, I find then, and he's saying this as a regenerate believer, I find then that the principle of evil is present in me. Even as an apostle, even as a regenerate believer, he could say, in myself, there is no good thing. In myself, there is the principle of evil. Anything other than that is a result of God's sovereign grace that I'm longing for him to complete in the resurrection and in the coming and glorious day. But again, this man did not think, as with many, that deeply about the statement about himself. So he had a pretty superficial view of what he was saying and what, he was, what Christ was trying to get him to think more deeply about. Now let me think, spend some more time on one other point. Because he had a diminished view of God, he had a skewed view of self, and that's the third point. He had a sincere question, but he had a wrong view of Christ, he had a wrong view of God and himself, and therefore, and therefore it led to a skewed view or wrong view of himself. Verse 20, Jesus said, you know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not commit murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And the man replied, and all these things I have kept from my youth. All of them I have kept from my youth. You want to give me a challenge, Jesus? I've met that challenge. You going to give me a way to earn life? I've earned that. Why don't I have it? Why don't I have it? So what does he mean here when he says, you know the commandments? Well, it's obvious by the ones he quotes, but he's referring to here the commandments are the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments given to Israel at Mount Sinai after God delivered them from Egypt. They were essentially the summary of the moral requirements of God for his people and for that matter for all of humanity. Now let me just make two brief comments here to kind of framework, give a framework for what he's asking. Two. The Ten Commandments, these commandments given by God, are the standard by which his people were to reflect his holiness. Remember Leviticus. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. These were at the heart of what that holiness looked like. Now, there were a lot of other details and stipulations, but these were at the heart of it. These were at the heart of the moral requirement of them as God's covenant people and his image bearers that was the standard of obedience. Number two, they are essentially an outworking of the two great commandments. And you'll remember that from Jesus' own statement. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor and yourself. On this, the law and the prophets stand. Everything. You want to boil down the Old Testament? It's these two commandments. Everything else is a working out of these two realities. 
The first part of the law has to do with love to God, not to having any other gods before him, taking his name in vain, and so forth. The second part has to do with love for neighbor, not murdering, stealing, cheating, and so forth. He gives him a section of the second part of the law, which would really be the easier part of the law by which to test him. And this man said, all of these things I have kept from my youth. He's looking at the whole of his life and he sees reason for confidence, not conviction. That's the problem. He looks at his life and says, I should have confidence, but he's not convicted. He thinks that based on the standard of the law, he would be found righteous, commended. And again, it's because he had a superficial view of goodness, holiness, and the requirement of the law. Paul says this in Romans 3, through the law comes what? The knowledge of sin. In other words, the law is not given to show us how righteous we are. It is to show us how wicked we are and in need of a Savior. He misunderstood it. This man thought of himself as a good person, as doing and being all that God would require of someone, and he had confidence that God would be pleased with him, even based on his word as he understood it. And there's no doubt that this man would have been respected for his morality, his religious deeds, but his can, his confidence came from a shallow understanding of God's nature and commandments. And here then is the problem with so many, even many who sit in church, even many who are religious, even possibly some who are here, who are pretty confident in themselves and in their own morality, their own religion. Now, why is that a problem? Well, what did Jesus say in Luke chapter 15, verse 7? He says this, or in Luke chapter 15, oh, wrong verse, but he says this. He says, he did not come to call the righteous, but who to repentance? Who? Sinners. Sinners to repentance. He did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Is he saying that anybody was righteous? Of course not. He's saying that those who think they're righteous, what do they lack? Any motivation for repentance. This man wasn't repenting. He wasn't saying, what can I give up? What have I done? How can I turn all of my life to you because everything else is dung? He's saying, no, I'm a righteous man who needs more righteousness. I'm a law-keeping man who needs another law, another do. He missed the point altogether. And many people think of themselves as pleasing to God and a good person who maybe messes up sometimes or sometimes does wrong, but not in a serious way. And the church fosters this attitude by calling sins, mistakes, moral failures, not sin, transgression, iniquity, and rebellion. I remember there was a famous comedian who sinned. He was, uh, I don't know if it was fornication or whatever, he was unmarried. But, but anyway, there was a clear sexual sin in his life. And I remember when it first came out, he said, uh, he had talked about how he had sinned. <laughs> Basically, it was, it was, it was actually uh, quite surprising and, and welcome that he had sinned and, and he needed forgiveness. And then he went off to some restorations, you know, some sexual healing, from Christian camp sexual healing. And then all of his statements became about how he's working on himself how he's trying to be made whole. It's incredibly sad. And that is unfortunately how much of the church thinks about these things. He did not see himself as God sees him. He had a superficial view of God. Now let me just 
very, very briefly make a comment about that. If we are going to relate to God based on our own righteousness, if we are in any way going to have the secret thought, that kind of little secret inner little hidden compartment that you think is only for you, and you're actually thinking, God must be really pleased with me. And because God is pleased with me, he will accept me. How could he not accept me? I'm a pretty good person. If that in any way is woven into your inner life and your thoughts, then you're where this man is, and you don't understand the holiness of God and what he requires. God is not saying, try to be really good. God's law was meant to manifest this one reality. Anything less than perfect conformity makes you a sinner and brings you under condemnation, not commendation from God. James 2 says, if anyone keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. Again, the law was meant to lead us to desperation of ourselves, not confidence in ourselves. If we understand the law, then we'll say with Paul this. Wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? If you understand the law, that is your internal response, unquestioned, unchallenged, and completely embraced, that I am a wretched man and I need a savior from this body of sin. That was the point of it. We could even ask this, if you, anyone is here would think they're good and could stand before God based on the totality of their, the goodness of their life, let me ask, did you sin even one time last week? Just once. Did you have any thought, any attitude, anything that fell short of God's perfect and holy character and standard? If so, you have now moved from the place of righteous to condemned. You've now moved from that place. And so Jesus is challenging this man on this very reality. And we would add this. Jason prayed it in his prayer. It was so helpful this morning. He, he basically prayed, forgive us if we would ever think of any, any confidence in our own works in light of what Christ suffered on the cross. So if you want to know what God thinks of your goodness, you have one place to look, and that is the cross of Jesus Christ. If you want to know what God thinks of human goodness, look at Christ, bleeding, bloody, crucified, mocked, naked, and shamed on the cross, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's what God thinks of your goodness. That's what he thinks of my goodness. That's what it amounts to. That is to say there is no goodness. There's only corruption that needs to be atoned for. There is no doing that makes us right with God. There is accepting what God has done for us in Christ. Let's note thirdly so we can wrap this up. So Jesus shines his light on the main thing. The man at this point is exposed as being completely outside of the covenant understanding of God and of the law and of his sin and of the nature of holiness and all of those things. But he still doesn't get it. All of these things, verse 21, I have kept from my youth. And now Jesus shines the light on the main thing, verse 22. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, go sell all that you possess, distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. One thing you still lack. He didn't get into a bait with him. He didn't get into some kind of discussion, but he gets right to the heart of the matter. And he's essentially saying, do you love God enough then to leave everything else and follow me? This is, of course, not a call to asceticism. This is not a call to all Christians. He knew what this man loved. 
He knew what it is that his heart treasured and what he was holding on to, and so he's testing him. If he loved God with all of his heart, if he truly was an obedient keeper of the law, then he would have immediately left anything, trusted in God to provide, gladly distributed his possessions to the poor who needed it, and followed Christ. But he didn't. What did it say? Verse 23, but when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. He was extremely rich. Instead of joy for having his question answered, instead of joy for saying, thank you, Jesus, for showing me the way that I can gain eternal life, it says, in fact, he was sad. The need of his soul wasn't met. He was grieved. Matthew 19 tells us this, that he left. He went away grieving. He walked away. So this was a call to repentance, to true faith, to transfer his love and his trust completely. This man was, in fact, what all of us are by nature, an idolater. Who worshipped and served the creation and the creature rather than the creator. He was an idolater. He loved this world and his life in it more than he loved God who made it and for whom it was made. And standing before the one for whom it was made. So Jesus laid that out to his disciples as well. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeits his soul? Let me just lay this before you quickly. Many of you have had this experience in witnessing to others. Someone shows a genuine interest, right? Maybe even a providentially arranged kind of interest where they come to you. It's just a fortuitous event that God's hand was in that brings someone to you. And you share the gospel and all of a sudden they're not interested. Have you had that experience? They walk away. That interest seems to just fade away. We've experienced this. Some of you may actually have experienced this on the side of the rich young ruler. You express kind thoughts towards Jesus, positive thoughts towards Christianity and the gospel. You say that you have an interest. That's why you're even here. That's why you come on a Sunday morning and you're not doing something else. But when this command is laid before you, rather than breaking you, it turns you away. And so the question is then, when it becomes real and personal, not just an idea of what you must give up, but an actual command from the Lord Jesus Christ, what is your response? You say, "Mm, not quite that far. Well, I'd say then you're not any different than this rich young ruler. And all of that sincerity then will count for nothing. I would even ask you this then for those. Is there anything right now for anybody here that keeps you from Christ, from true repentance? Anything. Any kind of anger. Somebody you're saying, well, I can't because it means I'd have to forgive this person. Any kind of lust. No, because it means I'd have to give up this lust and do battle with it. Any, Any kind of sense of control over your life that you're unwilling to give up then you're making a choice. You're making a choice, and hopefully it will not be the same choice enduringly that this young man made. It's just amazing, actually, to me how many can sit under the preaching of the gospel who can seem outwardly to have a life that agrees with everything they heard, but when you have an actual conversation with them and you talk to them, they're resting in their goodness. They're saying a Catholic is a Christian like we're a Christian. They're saying, well, I, they're, they'll talk about, well, why would you stand before God and he would allow you to be in his presence in heaven? And it begins, well, because I. 
do something. And yet they go to church, they nod their head, they sing the songs, they agree in generalities about the gospel, but in their heart, they're resting on their goodness. They're thinking it's just going to be okay in the end. And Jesus is here challenging us to say, no, it's not. It's not. There's an exchange that needs to be made, and this exchange is nothing less than your life for the life of Christ. And anything short of that will not be acceptable. So this is where everybody needs to come to. Lastly here, note salvation's impossibility, but also its reward. So Jesus looks at him and he says, how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they who heard it said, then who can be saved? If this man cannot be saved, who in the world could be saved? And Jesus says this. He doesn't, again, minimize it. He doesn't lessen it. He doesn't try to tiptoe around the answer. He simply says the truth. With men, this is impossible. It's impossible with people. But all things are possible with God. So he identifies wealth, just to state the obvious here, as a great hindrance. Why? Well, let me just say this for time's sake. Because wealth... Wealth is extremely sensual and seductive. It has a draw to it. But most significantly in terms of the gospel, it produces in us a sense of confidence and security. If you have wealth, scripture warns about this repeatedly, there's a sense of your security. There's a success that's your own and it inoculates people from a conviction of sin. And so it's dangerous, and yet we have a whole branch of professing Christianity that says that's the ultimate end. Jesus said to Revelation 3.17, the church, you say you're wealthy, I have need of nothing. You do not know you're blind, that you are naked, that you are poor, that you are exposed before God. So who can be saved? None apart from grace. But here is the promise for those who do respond by the grace of God to that call. Look at what Peter says, verse 28, and this is his gracious promise. Peter said to him, behold, we've left our own homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there is none who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come eternal life. And there's the other bracket. I want eternal life. I want whatever it is you tell me to do. And Jesus says, you're undone, but you don't realize it. And so you can't have what you're asking for. But to those who did respond and say, yes, we'll follow you, as the disciples did, as the account after this, Zacchaeus is willing to do, to those, he says, you can have eternal life. You can have eternal life. The disciples made this choice, as did many others who are in the presence of God even now. Many have left wealth, security, comforts, relationships to follow Christ, to gain in him the forgiveness of sin, the kingdom, and inheritance, promises that can never be taken away. Those are, these are those who see in Christ a redeemer from sin and a Lord to be trusted and will live their life based on this promise in the age to come eternal life the first fruits of it are now in Christ we have life but this eternal life is known in its fullness in the age to come 
So Jim Elliott famously said, you're familiar with this, he's no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And that captures in essence here. So before we hear this testimony, that is the challenge then that Christ lays before all of us. One, to evaluate our understanding of the gospel. What are you resting in and what are you trusting in? Are you willing to give up everything to follow Christ? If not, you're outside of Christ. And you need to repent to be inside of Christ. And for those who have trusted in Christ and will be encouraged by this, this relates as well to our sanctification. What is holding us in our pursuit of Christ? What are we unwilling to give up? That is contrary to our baptism that we are going to hear now as Ramon shares his testimony. And we can hear what it is that is a commitment to faith and a demonstration of the work of the Spirit in the heart when he calls someone to embrace Christ. And you see in Christ a treasure that says, you know what, it's hard, but I'd give up anything to have him, anything to have Christ, anything to be forgiven, anything to know that I'm him and his. So let's pray as we, Ramon uh, prepares his testimony. Father, thank you for your word. We know that as you said, Jesus, this is impossible with men. We don't work ourselves up to this. We don't, we can't come to this on our own. A natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God, you have told us. But though it's impossible for us, it's not impossible for you. And so it is with that that we pray together that for any who might be within the hearing of your word, that you might sovereignly break the stony heart and give them a heart of flesh that you might take their blind eyes and open them to see the glory of Christ, that you might take their deaf ears and dig them out, as it were, that they might hear the message of their salvation and respond, and that today could be the day of life. And encourage all of us who have tasted your grace as we hear the testimony of it from Ramon. We commit this time to you in the name of Jesus. Amen.